just a very, very brief recap. We've been spending this time in 1 Peter, and we've been looking at the idea of a group of people who have uh, been arrested, we've called it compelled, uh, by the message of the Bible in such a way that their lives are being dramatically changed. In a real sense, that that is the experience of every believer from that very moment right the way until today. Uh, faith in Jesus Christ, either on a kind of a, an ongoing, progressive way or in a dramatic way, uh, takes a hold of us. Uh, and um, for all of our own straying and wandering and kind of drifting one way or another, it grabs us and it shapes our life. Uh, and Peter is speaking to a group of people who are facing real, serious, dramatic opposition because of what they have come to believe. Uh, and this particular section, I'm going to be very open and honest with you now, this particular section has one of the most challenging verses in the whole of the New Testament, I think, in try not not in what it demands of us, but in trying to understand what it's even saying. Uh, we're going to be looking at that in a few minutes, so uh, that's, that's going to be interesting. Um, but I think what this particular section about is about is getting a grip of our minds, getting a grip of our thinking, and helping us to see that we are part of something which is way bigger, way, way more significant than anything which we think is serious and important in this life. We are part of something bigger. That, that, is, that idea, that theme, has been grabbed a hold of and it's been translated into all sorts of different stories down through the years, hasn't it? Some of you are now are fans of Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien, in his, in his way, grabbed a hold of that idea and immersed it in the whole of the story of Lord of the Rings. Uh, here we have these little hobbits, physically little hobbits, who were um, just going about their normal life in the Shire, and over a series of three um, sections, the, which probably became, I don't know, was it six films or something ridiculous? Whatever, we, we can always stretch it out to make some money. But we took that idea of these little hobbits who seem as though their life in, in one sense is just filled with importance and significance and, and big issues. Uh, they're taken out of that environment and they are immersed in something which is just way bigger than anything that they had possibly imagined that they could be part of. Now, in a real sense, Tolkien's idea behind that was unashamedly the idea of the Bible. He was very clear about that, that from his perspective, it's not trying to preach the Bible, but it's picking up on themes from the Bible and saying, for us as human beings, we tend to live in the Shire. Uh, and the Shire is filled with what we see as big, important things. Um, you might say, well, you know, that might be, you know, one of the little villages out in, in Yorkshire somewhere, but not in my life. Um, actually, my life is filled with big stuff. I, I think what this particular section is helping us to do is it's helping us to see that 
actually, no matter where we are in this world, no matter what our experience is in this world, in relative terms, it is all within the Shire compared to the cosmic ideas of the message of the Bible and the message of Jesus Christ. Now, that is import- that's critically important, isn't it? If we're thinking about a group of people who are about to face the most challenging of human experiences, where their faith is going to be the, the point on which they are going to be um, stripped of their possessions, stripped of their family relationships, stripped of their opportunities to continue to earn a living, stripped of their um, lives in some cases. That was the reality. And so, to to reinforce and to encourage uh, and to build a platform underneath these believers, Peter in this particular section is he's trying to get our minds into the big thinking. Now, I would say that no matter what is going on in our lives, even if it is the worst of situations, it it, it can't be worse than the idea of persecution by the Roman Empire and the loss of life. I'm not saying it might not be as bad because the realities of fears of medical conditions and those kind of things can be just as serious. Uh, We can be stripped of family relationships. We can be stripped of possessions. We can be stripped, even in this country, uh, of the opportunity to earn a living and all of those kind of things. But this particular section is relevant because it does speak to all of us today. So let's have a look at what it says. The first thing is that we've got some grounds for confidence. Let's have a look at what it says in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So here we have the first thing. I want to give you some foundational ways of living. And in a sense, Peter is returning to a theme which he's continued uh, to work through the whole of this letter. He's continuing to encourage them to do good works. In other words, he's encouraging them that the pattern of your life, and we've already seen, haven't we, that when we talk about good works, we're talking about a life which is shaped in a way which is uniquely different because of the impact of Jesus Christ in our lives. That we are living in a way which is shaped by His mercy, shaped by His goodness, shaped by His kindness. Now, do you see the way that it works? He's saying, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. It's in um, speech marks, uh, and that indicates that it was probably part of a hymn or part of um, some sort of well-known saying or something which was part of the church life by this time. And he's encouraging them, just remind yourself, just remind yourself in the face of it do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. That, that's in a sense, that's saying, like saying, you know, 
don't be frightened of this, but it's, it's huge, isn't it? It's massive what I'm being faced with. And you're saying, don't fear their threats? That seems like, how can, I, how can that possibly be an appropriate response? But it's not just the internalized uh, response where he's, he's not saying just inside, don't fear. He's saying, actually, actively display a pattern of behavior which equally is not fearful. So when you are asked, why, why is it, we, we often take this particular verse and we use it as um, a text, probably not inappropriately, wholly, in terms of a, a, an opportunity for us to think about being willing to speak about the faith that with it is within us if we are believers in Jesus. But what he's actually saying is, when you are confronted as to why you are living in this way, what's going on? What, who are you, in other, in other words? Why are you living with a hope? And he says, when you are confronted in that way, the reality is that you're probably going to face a time in the not-too-distant future where that question is potentially the turning point on a crisis in the future. When you are asked it, the outcome of the way you answer it could be really severe. And you see how that is now connected with do not fear. He's saying don't fear, and one of the ways in which you can express that fear is by not being open and honest about the reality of who I am. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and that might cost me. Don't fear being asked that. Be willing to be honest about who I am. Be honest about the fact that I am a believer in Jesus Christ. It is the reason why I have a hope with it, which is within me. Revere Christ as Lord is what he's saying. So in other words, there's these two options. I am asked I am, this is who I am, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm being asked why I have a hope in me. The outcome of that might be incredibly dangerous, and therefore I've got to work out who is Lord, who is the one who is supreme. The person who is asking it, or God himself. Therefore, revere Christ in your heart as Lord at that moment in time. Be confident in Him. That's faith. That is faith. Why is it faith? Because it is believing in the things that we cannot see at that moment in time. Jesus isn't there. Jesus isn't alongside these individuals as they ask or ask that question. Hebrews uh, 11.1 tells us that faith is believing in the things that we do not see. It's that statement, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and therefore I am willing to respond in a, which is open and honest about the, the hope that I have. How do you do that? The way that we are called, and I think that this is a number one, uh, statement in terms of how we live in uh, a very different religious 
structured society. When we are asked, how do we live, how do we respond, we respond with our words in a way which reflects the good works that we do. The words match the life that we should live because we use words which are gentle and respectful. Do you see the way that matches the good works? We, we, they, they, we are consistent. Our response is with gentleness, with respect. The natural probable response is, well, I guess that we all have different characters. Huh? There's the fight or flight kind of response in all of us. Uh, the flight response is not to answer in the face of a really challenging question. The fight is to kind of get in there with the first punch kind of thing. And what we're actually called to do is to respond with gentleness and respect because that gives us, that maintains before the Lord a clear conscience. There is no inconsistency by the way that we respond with our words from the way that we live. In a sense, Peter is laying out here a pattern of life, isn't he? Which we are called to live. Consistent in our acts, consistent in our words, respectful in our acts, respectful in our words, gentle in our acts, gentle in our words, displaying Jesus. It's a very outward-looking set of responses that we are called to, to display. Look at the beginning again. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer, that really moves us on to our next point. Doesn't the Christian life, the idea that we have a sovereign, loving, huge, all-powerful, all-knowing God mean that we are, if you like, immunized from the possibility of a painful life? Surely that should be what the Christian faith gives us, we should be protected from it. In fact, there is a tendency for us to think that if the outcomes of our decisions, if the outcomes of our words result in problems and challenges and difficulties, that we can interpret that, that therefore God is judging me. God is opposed to me in my, in my actions and my words. Well, let's go on. Look at verse 17. Our confidence is in a good God. But it's better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The idea Peter is introducing here is the idea that suffering, opposition, 
difficulty, challenge is part of God's will. Now that, that in human terms, we don't want to have to face that, do we? We don't want for God's will to include challenges like that. And therefore, what is the reassurance, what is the confidence, what is the foundation that we are prepared to say, even if it's that, then I'm prepared to endure that. The confidence that we have is Jesus himself. And the the logic works like this. When Jesus was in this world, when he was facing that kind of opposition, what was the objective? What was the outcome? Where was the vision of his activity? Well, we can see it. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In other words, he's saying the suffering of Jesus had a purpose. It's not, it wasn't just an un, a kind of a meaningless experience for Jesus to suffer. It had a purpose. It had an objective. And the objective was you and me in relationship with God. That was the end goal, if you like, of the suffering of Jesus. He was to bring you and me to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. We're going to come on to the spirit bit in a minute, because that kind of escalates our thinking a little. But the essential element is this. There is the possibility that when we are faced with that crunch question, and when we are faithful in gentleness and respect, that our hope is in Jesus, the outcome of that might result in suffering. It might result in suffering. Uh, I think one of the things that Jesus was very clear with many people who he engaged with was the honesty of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that life is going to be rosy. I mean, in one sense, many, many of those who came to Jesus came to Jesus because life already wasn't rosy. They came in difficulties. But it wasn't as though he said, right, from now on there's not going to be any difficulties. There was an honesty that the fo- being a follower of Jesus means that we take up our cross and we follow him. There is a sense in which suffering is entwined within the disciple of Jesus. Uh, and yet what we see is that all of that has a purpose. It has a purpose. There is an objective. There was an objective for these believers. The story of the growth of the church in the first few centuries is an incredible story. I, want to, I would encourage you, if you're interested in that kind of thing, get into some of the reading of the way the church grew during the first two centuries while it was being dramatically opposed Why did it grow? Because it was being opposed is at least one of the answers. It is at least one of the answers. The growth of the church was because it was opposed. Because people were looking on at that opposition and they were seeing 
that people were embracing something which was bigger than just this life. They were prepared to live a life of sacrifice, a life of opposition, because it was worthwhile. Now, the reality is that from that first two centuries, that has happened repeatedly across the world. Time and time and time again, we see that the church flourishes at the time when it is opposed. I was in Burma a number of years ago. The church flourishing at a time when it is opposed. In China right at the moment, the biggest explosion in, in terms of a geographical map the biggest explosion in faith and growth in the church is in China, a place where for centuries there has been all sorts of different ways in which the message of the Bible has been opposed. There is a sense in which what Peter is saying to these believers and is saying to you and me today, the fact that you are being opposed is not a measure of God's displeasure with you, number one. Secondly, it is the, again and again and again, it is the very means by which God builds His church. Because people look on and see that there is a value in faith in Jesus Christ in spite of the fact that it brings challenge. Now, for most of us, we do the things that bring positive outcomes in our life. And this is the opposite, it seems, in human terms. We have, I've, I guess you've probably had conversations maybe with somebody or you've thought it yourself or you've, you've kind of been experienced in these kind of things and you, you've seen that, that kind of sense of fear that the outcome of these events and the way my life is unfolding must mean that somewhere back there I've really, really upset God. That is a real danger that we interpret and we, we see the negative events in life as a mark of the fact that we've displeased God back there. Let's take that to its most extreme. When Jesus was abandoned by a father, was, was that because he'd failed back there? No. That's what Peter's saying. It's because the father and the son were together in the mission of saving a people. And therefore, let's not measure the challenges and the events of life as if you like a litmus paper on how we're doing before God. So he's saying right now, remember that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. Now that we, we're moving on to this, kind, this verse that I warned you at the beginning, this, this verse is one of the, or this little section is one of the most challenging as we move forward. After, listen to this now. After being made alive... He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. 
It's like, okay. That, that, if you've read Peter regularly or you've seen it over the years, this verse will be a challenging verse. What does it mean? I'll, I'll start by saying, on one sense, I don't know. I don't really know what it means. It is way beyond me. But I think I'm going to take a perspective and give you at least one view which might be the way in which this helps a group of people who are facing potential persecution. And that's a way in which we understand the Bible for a start, isn't it? Why would Peter introduce this at this particular point? That's our starting point for interpreting what's going on. Why would he say it? So it seems to me that in some way he's saying it so that it will encourage people who are about to face persecution. That's the starting point. This next bit is this. After being made alive, what does that mean? I, I believe that it means after the resurrection of Jesus. After the resurrection of Jesus. He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. There are lots of interpretations of that, but the one that I've leaned towards, the one that I feel most confident in this is in this, that that is not, that is not dead people, but rather what Peter is introducing is a bigger-than-this-world idea of the declaration of the resurrection of Jesus. That actually when we look at it and when we think about the resurrection of Jesus, we tend, don't we, we tend to limit it to be, it being a witness to human beings. We see it as being those at the time and us now seeing Jesus risen. Believing in it, embracing it, holding on to it, seeing that as an element of our faith. But what I think Peter is introducing here is he's saying, look, you need to understand that the idea of the resurrection of Jesus is way bigger than just the salvation of a group of people. In actual fact, there is a cosmic spiritual declaration of the triumph of Jesus in his resurrection, which is to all of those spirits who in their rebellion oppose God and oppose Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was as if to say to all of those bound spirits who are not given free reign, but are controlled by God in their rebellion, it is a declaration by Jesus to say, here is me triumphantly, victoriously defeating you. That's what I think this verse says. It's Jesus saying He is declaring victory over the spirits that have opposed the work of Jesus. Now we know that that's the case. That, that this world is not all that there is. That there is a spiritual dimension. That there are those who are opposed to the ministry of Jesus and the work of Jesus 
and the fallen angel in Satan is the one with all of his followers who is most opposed. Now, why would that help? Why would that help a group of people who are about to be persecuted? Because you're looking at it and you're thinking, do you know what? I am reminded that the biggest opposition is not, it's not even Caesar. There's, there's much bigger things going on than Caesar. There is a whole spiritual dimension which is opposing the work of Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus' resurrection which is declaring to that spiritual dimension, I've won. I've won. So if I can get my head into a perspective which is bigger than just this world, if I can have a confidence in a resurrected Jesus who declares to even spirits who have been opposing for all time the work of Jesus, then the work of Caesar even, the opposition of Caesar drops down a notch, doesn't it? Because Jesus and his victory is just bigger than this world. That's what it's all about. It's bigger. It's greater. And therefore it helps. If we believe in it, it helps for us to put things in perspective. It is not as big as it seems, whatever it is. It is not as big as it seems. Because the work of Jesus is achieving something way bigger than even you and me can see. And then he goes on, and I don't think, I think he act, Peter in this next bit, he uses Noah as, if you like, a way to, to, to introduce something else. I, I don't think it's specifically that the spirits are related to Noah. I think it's just that actually this has just been, even before the flood, an ongoing opposition of Jesus. And he says, now, if we look at it, what we see is that, if I switch back on my tablet, uh, if, if we see it, we look back and we see that this was uh, going on. God waited patiently in the day of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Through water. Why does he introduce this? Because I think that he's introducing a way for us to see in the midst of this massive, great, huge thing, there is personal participation. If, if, if the work of God was going on in a spiritual dimension, even in the days of Noah, if all of this was going on, it actually related to just eight people. Just eight people. And now for you and me, there is a personal participation, and our participation works in a similar way to the work of Noah. Uh, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. And to be honest, this next verse, we could spend another month on this, but I'm going to be really quick. If anybody got any questions, grab a hold of me and we can chat it through. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's not saying baptism saves you, is he? He's not saying that. He's saying it saves you. The, the saving bit is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The baptism bit is saying, I believe in that resurrection of Jesus Christ. Saying that I actually, that's what I hold on to. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves you. Saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. He's saying, look, all of this is going on. Jesus is risen. He's now in heaven. All angels, authorities, powers are in submission to him. And you know what? You and me, we participate personally, individually in that by the statement of baptism which says, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what I believe in. Now, in our day-to-day lives, if we can get a handle on how big that is, and yet at the same time, how intimately personal it is, Every challenge in life is put into perspective. We are in a place where we are surrounded by something absolutely huge. We are part of something way bigger than we ever imagined. And yet you and I are personally related to that. Jesus who saves us. That's great hope, isn't it? That's an encouragement. It's also an encouragement that we've managed to get through probably one of the hardest verses in the New Testament, uh, and we're still breathing, so that's great news. As we close, can that be our point of connection as we leave? This big Jesus, this cosmic event, is mine personally, if I believe and trust in him. That act of baptism is a way of declaring what's gone on inside.